Good evening, everyone. Can everyone hear me? Um, first off, I'd uh, like to thank uh, Valley Streams Practice Committee um, for inviting uh, us to talk tonight. Um, when I was asked, you know, you know um, I had to live in a small house and my wife said she overheard me, you know, say an immediate yes <laughs> to do the talk, even though she said, oh, she said, oh, yeah you're probably going to be nervous, but for some reason you said yes immediately. So um, thank you for the honor to speak today. And I also want to thank um, Omona Vieg for agreeing to do the co-talk with me. Um, she immediately said yes too. So thank you for sharing this day with me and, um, and agreeing to do the talk. Um, when I first uh, got asked the the do this uh, cold talk. Um, I uh, a lot of a lot of images came into my mind. You know, one was you know how 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 do you honor um, such a such a person um, who was an icon, um, the probably one of the most well known civil rights leaders and. Um, herald of peace and so first off I thought about you know you know me and uh Omoni VA talked about like what 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 were our first impressions of Dr. King you know growing up or in our life and um I believe my first impression was uh being in my aunt's house my dad's sister and I don't know why uh, I'm guessing like most people she was moved by Dr. King um, and his I Have a Dream speech. And so every so often when she would babysit me, I would just just hear the speech in her living room. And occasionally, you know, after playing with my cousin, I would then go and look at the TV and see the speech in black and white. And, you know, didn't really know why she kept playing it over and over again, you know. You know, as a kid, I was taught about Martin Luther King Jr. and the I Have a Dream speech, um, but I didn't really know that much. But I knew he was important in my community. Um, and there were various things that I saw in my family and in my relative's house that told me that he was very important. Um, in some living rooms, his picture either stood right next to on opposite corners of Jesus Christ. Pictures of Jesus Christ would be on one side, Martin Luther King would be on the other, you know, sort of as this role model of peace and love and unity. And so those images came to my mind. Um, and then after that, you know, I said, oh, let me, let me do some extra research. Let me do some digging, um, go past maybe my perceptions of Dr. King. And I, I came up with some interesting um, tidbits in my search. Uh, I'm sure everyone takes this weekend, you know, this this holiday to remember him. And, you know, I think one of the main things to remember and honor him is just to go over his history, go over his speeches. And one thing I came across was I did not even know the holiday was not signed in um, as a federal holiday until 1983 
which is very interesting. And which is even more interesting that President Reagan is the one who signed the bill. Um, so it's very interesting to figure that out. Um, and to also know that I grew up knowing that this was a federal holiday, um, whereas most people, they know a time when this was not a holiday. And even to this day, there are some people who do still do not get off for this holiday and who are still fighting to get off for this holiday. I myself um, work for an insurance company and I believe it wasn't until the last two or three years that I actually got this holiday off. So I'm also very honored to get the holiday off to be able to honor Dr. King. Um, Also, I'm gonna go back to the I Have a Dream speech, which um, everybody knows. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, most of us know that it um, happened on a march in Washington. Um, in 1963, which I knew that Dr. King mostly, you know, he was, he was an, um, yeah, he was an opponent of, you know, of segregation in the South. You know, he fought for voters' rights. Um, of course, he fought for racial um, justice, but the March on Washington was also for jobs, um, for a living wage, which, you know, I did some research and some of the things he was fighting for was the minimum wage at that point was $2, which would be a, a minimum wage today of $17 per hour. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, but mostly in my life, you know, he stood as um an icon, the embodiment of justice and also the African-American struggle. Um, he stood for all people, but you know, in my perception as a kid, that was what I thought. And when I think about Dr. King, you know, sometimes I think um, there, at least I don't remember, but I try to research what it was like for um, my ancestors before the civil rights movement and early 1900s and during Jim Crow law. And I wanna read um, this poem. I know that there's many in this sangha and then multiple sanghas who you know, love poems because I feel like they have that experiential uh, feeling to them that give you almost an image of what things were like before, especially if you're reading poems that aren't current. And I want to read two poems to you, um, which I think are examples of what I think, you know, some of the things Dr. King and other civil rights leaders who were, were also fighting for. And one of the poems is by Langston Hughes, who was a poet, I believe, in the Harlem Renaissance. And The first poem is called Negro. I am a Negro, black as the night is black, black like the depths of my Africa. I've been a slave. Caesar told me to keep his doorsteps clean. I brushed the boots of Washington. I've been a worker. Under my hands, the pyramids arose. 
I made mortar for the Woolworth building. I've been a singer all the way from Africa to Georgia. I carried my sorrow songs. I made ragtime. I've been a victim. The Belgians cut off my hands in Chicago. They lynched me still in Mississippi. I am a Negro, black as the night is black, black like the depths of my Africa. And lastly, the second poem I was gonna read, um, which I believe is part of the I Have a Dream. And this poem is called, I Too. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. Um, I think these poems uh, speak to an early feeling of people of color in America and the, the obstacles that Dr. King had to go through to protest civil rights and to protest many of the things now we don't talk about or in, in remembering him, you know, we forget that sometimes, because I don't hear much about it, that he was concerned about poverty. Um, he was concerned about war. He was even concerned about capitalism, um, which is pretty interesting because um, we don't hear much about that. Um, and most of all, he had compassion for everyone. And I think that was one of his driving motivations. And lastly, I want to say that, you know, one of his sermons that um, I think highlights his, I think, hope for America and I guess which drove his, his, um, his peaceful protests was the sermon he had called What is Man? And he said, when I see how we fight vicious wars and destroy human life on bloody battlefields, I find myself saying, man is not made for that. When I see how we live our lives in selfishness and hate, again, I say, man is not made for that. Um, and I think that that speaks to what he saw in humanity. He saw goodness. Um, as Buddhists, we say, you know, he, he saw the Buddha nature in all of us. And um, yeah. And so, you know, my, my perceptions from kid till now have changed, you know, with my practice and with being an adult. And um, yeah, so that, that, these are my perceptions I have when I think of Martin Luther King as an ancestor. Um, and so I'll, I'll uh, go over to Amuno VA to get her perceptions. Thank you, Richard. And uh, thank you all for having me here today. Thank you, uh, Richard, for inviting me. Um, it's been a while since I've sat with Sanka, so um, 
it's uh, nice to see you all. Um, I have it on gallery view so I can see all your faces, um, which doesn't help in speaking because I get nervous, but uh, it's fine. Um, so yeah, when Richard and I were talking about how we would um, structure this talk, um, we both had similar um, kind of impressions as children um, being introduced to Martin Luther King Jr. And um, my most vivid memory, or what may be one of my first memories, was uh, doing a school activity um, where we were basically coloring um, an image of him. And I was a very, you know, um, studious child, very uh, much the rule follower, uh, color in the lines, you know, color with appropriate colors, all of that. And so I colored his face, you know, the traditional way, skin was brown, hair's mustache was black. Um, and, you know, I thought I did a pretty good job. And when uh, we were all done, we put up our drawings and I see kids took a lot of artistic license. And so I saw a lot of, you know, red cheeks and blue eyebrows and just um, very colorful Im images of MLK. And I was not super approving because, you know, that wasn't the assignment. Um, but <laughs> It's so interesting because those colorful faces and um, the freedom expressed within them, I did admire that part. And those are probably like the images I remember the most um, rather than my regular degular, just depiction of his face that you can see anywhere. Um, so that was kind of my, my first introduction. And it was very much like um, tailored toward what children can understand. So it's like, you know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is this hero. Um, he was a hero of the civil rights movement. And he was, and to me, I think at that time it was, um, I thought he was the movement. That was it, you know? And, um, and it, it, it was very much like um, this kind of, you know, that elementary level understanding. But what I came to learn was that that, seemed to permeate society that seemed to be kind of like the the overarching public narrative like this kind of um general um sanitized diluted version you know of who he was his life um people agreed that he was important but it was kind of like you didn't get much deeper than that and you had to kind of learn that on your own so um I learned more about him you know as I grew but it was really as an adult that I had to do my own investigation and uh you know find out that he was more than just the I have a dream speech um you know listening to and I think it was actually um a former partner of mine who uh uh introduced me to one of his speeches about uh, the Vietnam War and how he spoke about how, you know, you have these Black soldiers going to fight for freedom in a different country and dying and risking their lives and then coming back and not being able to experience what they're fighting for in at home. So, um, and so what that meant to me was like, there's this kind of power and um, force about him that I didn't, get that impression of growing up um, and that I had to kind of um, learn on my own. Um, and especially when it came to kind of this contrast between him and um, Malcolm X, you had, 
you know, uh, Dr. King's um, stance of nonviolence held against Michael Malcolm X's um, by any means necessary. And it was kind of like presented to me. And my impression was like, there's a good way to be an activist and there's a bad way to be an activist. And it was so simplistic. Um, but that was what the narrative that was, that was the narrative that was, um, that was given, that was um, implied. And what I had to learn was that there wasn't, you know, this good or bad, but, you know, I had to question who was making those implications. Maybe that was the bad actor in all of this. And so, and and how did they benefit from, from uh, both um, implying that there's this dichotomy and how to, navigate, negotiate change and to gain freedoms, as well as, um, you know, there, there being a right way to do it or a right time to do it. Um, I um, learned about the, well, I, I think it was maybe in the last few years, actually, I uh, listened to uh, the letter from Birmingham prison or jail and um, I read it again recently, and I think it really kind of um, just, it's so um, pertinent to now, um, especially with um, the um, racial uprisings in uh, 2020 and, um, and how it's kind of tapered off, how you don't hear in the media as much um, you're not hearing from companies, um, you know, talking about their stance on racial just, justice and, and, you know, and people are, there's this um, sense of fatigue, if not outright kind of backlash um, against talking about racial just, justice and equity. And so I wanted to um, revisit this, this passage um, from uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. I've almost reached the conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of, absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you, and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the mythical concepts of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So um, in, in kind of bringing that up, like I, when I, when I first heard that, um, I thought about, it's not just like the white moderate, that's the issue. It's like all of us who are kind of complacent to, um, maybe not complacent, some are complacent, maybe those maybe may not know what to do. Um, I remember hearing that and this was like around the time um, Fernando Castile was killed. And I felt like I need to be, I need to do something about it. You know, um, I felt like that 
I won't say I felt like the white moderate, but I felt like one of those who just weren't doing anything, just kind of like lamenting, like this is, you know, going on and, um, you know, and I don't know what to do about it. So I'm not doing anything. Um, and so um, I attended the vigil um, that we had in Sacramento. And then um, I remember attending a BLM uh, meeting and uh, after, and that was like a really large meeting. I think um, that, that event um, with Mr. Castile's um, death really um, stirred a lot of people to to act as as it did me, and so we went to this meeting and um, it was uh, stated that we would kind of do this you know peaceful walk you know down the street, and so I said okay I'll stay at for that, and so we you know gathered after the meeting. And we start to walk down the street and then it became this action. Um, it became, we were, you know, um, marching down the street. We were um, chanting, um, um, uh, I, I can't think of the specific phrases, but we were chanting. And then um, the the leader was saying, okay, we're going into the street. And I was just like, this is not what I signed up for, but I'm here, you know? Um, and I just recall, you know, feeling like, okay, I want to do something, but this doesn't feel authentic to me. This doesn't feel like me. And, um, and I had to think about like what my role could be in, um, the work that still needs to be done. And so um, I want to talk about that more in a little bit, but I kind of want to turn it back to Richard because I feel like I'm going into the our, our <laughs> next segment. So um, I'm going to turn it back to you, Richard. All right. Thank you, Um, uh, When we when we both talked uh, and uh, created the, I guess the title of our talk, um, "Ancestral Guide Along the Bodhisattva Path." Um, we, we, we talked about, you know, what this holiday, the feelings it brought up for us and, you know, and we sort of had this thought in our head, you know, that, um, Dr. King, well, he is an ancestor. And I think, um, for me, I think the Buddhist practice has, rekindle this idea of ancestor. I know in my culture, um, there was a big thing of ancestors and elders, but I don't know, maybe it's a generational thing. It's not so much talked about. Um, and maybe there's a resurgence, maybe it's just me, but um, Dr. King is seen as an ancestor, uh, a four elder. Um, and I think a good example of the Bodhisattva path in practice, um, his nonviolent stance, um, his idea of serving humanity. And I think that was part of his, his Christian faith. Um, doing research for this talk, I learned that one of his 
goals as a preacher was to get his Christian community to act more in social issues as as a way of his faith, um, you know, uh, in action, um, a way to for them to not just practice being Christians, but also to act in a social way. Um, and I feel like the Bodhisattva path has that element in it that I'm I'm not just practicing for my own welfare, but my practice then is being extended to everybody else. Um, and it sort of reminded me, his, his life reminded me of that Bodhisattva vow that we said earlier, or, or that we will say later, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Um, and I believe in uh, the announcement for this talk, there was a quote, and it basically talked about how he believed in the interconnectedness of us all, um, that racial injustice hurts us all, poverty hurts us all, um, war hurts us all. And, you know, he educated America and wanted to, you know, through his acts and through his protest, he wanted to show them what was happening in the South and to a certain extent in the North. Um, and so his practice as being a Christian, which can be, you know, I see as a practice of a Buddhist is um, taking your spirituality, your faith, and extending it to other issues um, and social issues um, by educating people, by, you know, by, by our very practice of seeing suffering, um, the practice of seeing suffering in ourselves, which then allows us to see the suffering in others, um, is, is a very important path and a I believe for myself is is part of my journey um, in practicing this way. And you know, we can take you know this practice and be aware of the current issues of the day. And uh, recently, the book study we did um, a study of the precepts. And one of the members brought up Rev. Anderson's book, I believe is Upright. And I, 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 I've been reading through that slowly. And one of the things he talks about with practicing the path of being a bodhisattva is becoming, you know, intimate and close with other beings. And I say intimate by um learning to listen to them and get to know their story um so in this path i believe you know for me the social way that i've been using this is when i see other social movements that are happening right now um movements uh with the lgbtqia um, movements in universal health care, um, the current civil rights actions that um, 
people have taken um, where sometimes I have to go above what is being seen. Sometimes I have to listen to what is being said for these social movements. And I believe that, you know, you can use the Bodhisattva path to, I guess, go over preconceived notions that we all have, you know, in movements that we are not involved in, but it involves alleviating suffering from one group um, to another. And And we can see this today, like in the viewing the news and what's in the internet now, you know, for this talk, I sort of opened myself up to the to current state of the world and, you know, the weekend coming up to this holiday. And one of the main things that I saw was Dr. King's son um, basically saying to remember his father, he hopes that the politicians um, take this holiday and uh, maybe pass the the voter legislation that's there right now. Um, And so I believe, you know, this is one of the main reasons of this holiday for us to use our practice to um, see a better future, to, to see that civil rights and social um, revolution can be done peacefully, but also like practicing the way this is a, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing practice. Um, that's not about, well, actually, you know, there's, there's movements or there actually is movement in what has happened in America. Um, we still need civil rights. We still need civil rights leaders, but it is a, it's constant work. Like Zazen, we can't just, um, I guess, sit and forget, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like someone said, um, happiness is, is something you constantly have to work on. And I believe it's like Buddhism and practice. And in my practice, I sort of see it that way. It's something you constantly work on. You constantly work on having that moment of happiness. You constantly work on moving towards the America or division of America that we want. And yes, and so I'll pass to Omanivier for her talk. Thank you. Um, something that you said about um, Dr. King and, and, and him as a bodhisattva, um, that was kind of um, my one of my reintroductions to him um, through the Buddhist lens when I started attending um, SBMG uh, back in... Ooh, 2011. Yes, I think 2011, August. And, um, and we had several teachers um, come to uh, Sangha and, and offer teachings at either um, 
over the years that either focused on him, focused on his life or used his words. And so I got to see um, Dr. King in that, that lens of, of him um, embodying right speech and um, right livelihood and um, the commitment to do no harm and, and learning like the, um, the um, path of, of Sila, which is all those things. So I think moving forward um, with um, understanding him in that lens and being able to kind of um, see how I can apply because um, even though he's, you know, he was from a Christian background, he embraced all faiths. He worked with um, uh, the Jewish faith with rabbis. He worked across uh, different um, um, denominations and religions. And so to kind of be able to, because I came into Buddhism, like not really wanting to um, adopt a religion, um, looking at Buddhism as a way of thought, as, as a philosophy, as a way to um, work with my mind as it was, um, and to um, to care for care for what was happening in my mind, which was causing a lot of suffering. And I also came with this kind of impression of Christianity, which has kind of moderated or um, uh, has has become more nuanced over the years um, and a little more um, uh, I don't I'm trying to think of the right word it's not tolerant but um, more um, open-minded about it and so kind of looking at um, Dr. King and in his message and not just as you know a Christian minister but also how it crosses over into these different um, ideas, these different nice spiritual ideas that it really gets to that spiritual um, center. Um, I've been able to take some of those um, lessons and apply that to um, my practice. And so going back to um, how I felt kind of out of place and, and not quite um, in my authentic self um, demonstrating, um, I was, you know, practicing um, meditation at the time and attending Sangha. And um, and I believe um, at that point, I don't think um, we started, uh, we started POC Sangha yet. And so um, I think near the end of that year um, into the next, I think that's when we, we, we began. And so once... Um, we started sitting together and I started facilitating um, sits. At some point it occurred to me that um, there are different ways to be a part of change, to be a part of the movement. Um, and going to a quote that Dr. King himself said in um, a speech or a sermon called uh, The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life. He says, um, if you can't be a, a sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or fail, be the best at whatever you are. And he talked about self-acceptance and um, how not everybody can be, you know, this icon or that 
a figure, but they have to be the best at, where the, at who they are and what they are. And, um, and it starts with self-love and self-acceptance. And so um, I found that through um, hosting and facilitating um, POC Sangha, I was meeting people who were, you know, activists in the community and who were um, um, very active in, 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 in vocal in initiating change and, and um, fighting for change. And they needed a place to find refuge. refuge. And um, at a point, it occurred to me that that was my role. Like I was um, contributing by allowing those who were at the forefront to come find refuge, to come find solace, to come find um, community and, and that, uh, and, and allowed them to um, kind of reset and recharge and, and then go back out and do their work. So, um, the, the lesson for me, um, one of the lessons for, for me was, um, yeah, finding my place in, in where I felt most authentic and, but still doing something. And so I feel that the message for all of us is, um, we're all not going to be a Dr. King, you know, we're all not going to be, um, even a Fannie Lou Hamer. We can be, you know, ourselves as long as we are, um, doing what we believe is right. Um, and doing it the way that, um, is most effective and most impactful for us. Um, one of the other, um, the biggest thing, and this kind of a occurred to me this morning because I just had this moment. I don't know. I was, um, I think I was like making coffee or something and I was thinking about this talk and um, and it occurred to me that this, this, this holiday tends to make me sad. Um, it makes me sad that, you know, we lost one of our great leaders and um, that even after all this time, we are still struggling for the same stuff, you know, and, um, that long arc of, you know, um, that, that long arc, arc of morality or, or I'm trying to remember the word, but, um, bending towards justice is kind of looking like a you, if it's feeling like a snapback, um, especially now. And so, um, I found myself like getting just, just really kind of discouraged, you know, when you, when you, um, hear about states passing legislation to um, restrict voting because, you know, they're um, promoting this false narrative of um, corrupt elections. And you hear about um, parents in school board meetings um, fighting to get books that, you know, describe the Black experience off the shelves because they don't want their white children to feel bad. Um, it's really discouraging. And so I just, it, it, it makes me wonder like how far, you know, have we come, but after, you know, really listening to, um, and this is why I'm grateful for this talk actually, because um, I had to, well, I wanted to, I chose to listen to, to his speeches and to hear his voice and to hear the man um, reminded me that he was a man and he had his own, um, moments of discouragement and doubt. And, um, what 
kept him going was his faith. And um, so going back to kind of like that, that discouragement, I felt like there was a, there was a rabbi um, Israel Dresner that passed away last week. And he was um, a friend of Dr. King and he um, was arrested um, for, um, he was doing the freedom rides and he was arrested several times. Um, And even he like, you know, knowing he was diagnosed with a terminal um, illness, he passed away of cancer. Um, He said, um, I feel a little guilty leaving the present world where the forces of hatred and discrimination seem to be on the rise and democracy seems to be in danger. And, but yet he also um, recalled the story of, you know, that reminded him that, um, what King told him about that, that long arc of, um, the, uh, I'm going to keep saying that wrong. Um, the arc of the moral universe, he was really good with his words, um, is long. And he talked about, um, a man who, uh, I think he was, um, in his eighties who, who got the right to vote. And, um, the, the man said, um, I ain't where, where I want to be. I ain't where I should be. I ain't what I'm going to be, but thank God I ain't where I was. And, um, and it just says that even like those, those, those small steps forward, you know, they're still forward, you know, there's still, there's still movement. Um, and so the, the idea of, of faith and, and, for me, like accepting it as less of a charge word having to do with religion or Christian religion and more of, you know, the, the ideas of, um, confidence in, in what you, um, are understanding and, and, and what you know to be true. Um, it's, it's one of those great lessons that I take from his life. Um, and, how he kind of described his faith. Um, he talked about, you know, being fearful and discouraged and, um, and then remembering that, you know, God is with him and God is behind him. And that's what um, kept him uh, continuing in, in, in the face of danger, in the face of, um, adversity in the face of, um, just, yeah, mortal, mortal danger. And, um, and to see how deeply he reached into that faith, um, allows me to feel that, you know, it is, actually, I actually felt it. I felt, I felt, um, that reminder that that's what faith is for. Um, when I was feeling particularly discouraged, um, and sad, that's when I knew what he was talking about to draw, drawing upon that faith that, um, there is, 
a way to to move forward in that despite forces that are um, fighting against us, you know, coming from fear and ignorance, um, if we are faithful to our purpose, if we know our purpose and we know our role and we know um, how to best express that purpose and that that will then we do what we can and we will make the world a little bit better than we found it. Um, Dr. King's faith, um, his faith outlived him and his faith was the gift that he left for us. He left it for those who outlived him. He left it for those who were not yet born. Um, and so for me, I take that with me, um, and, and move forward with that. So. And, um, I want to say that I had that way more eloquently written, but I didn't want to read. <laughs> so. <laughs> But thank you for listening. Thank you both so much, Richard and Amona Vier. I mean, your your depth of honesty and inquiry and and such a such a a message that embraces all of our experience, our doubts and our fears and and our hopes and 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 how the the Dharma is a gift that Martin Luther King gave us too. So we're now is time to have some dialogue and some discussion and questions. And so I'm not sure, do you want to call on people or would you like me to do that? Or I, can you see everybody? Um, I can see um, that Jim has his hand up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. We'll call on Jim. Oh, thank you. I'm and Richard. Um, wow. Um, that was so wonderful. Uh, I'm, um, <laughs> I listened to a lot of talks, and I, I really enjoyed this talk. And so much, uh, thank you so much for, Amona um, Vier, for uh, articulating um, the sadness that you feel uh, at the time of this holiday. And, and that certainly, that, that really resonated for me. Um, you know, having lived through that period of time uh, in, in the 60s, you know, when we lost uh, JFK and Dr. King and Robert Kennedy to, to all to assassination. I mean, it was it was a terrible, terrible time. And, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was escalating. It was it was it was just um yeah, such a difficult time, and we're going through a difficult time now. But um, and you know we're losing so many people to the virus and so forth. But um, and it was just, anyway. When I reflect back, I feel like that. Like so, it's we lost these great articulate um, leaders that that, that um, you know, the likes of which almost it doesn't seem we've seen since. And um, um, 
the stature, uh, you know, and and the moral leadership that Dr. King showed, we we just we just don't see that, and in such a such a tremendous tremendous loss. So, I mean, I don't want to, I guess, uh, emphasize that exactly. I just I I just resonated with your 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 saying that this this holiday brought up that sadness because it certainly does for me as well. Yes. Thank you. Uh, um, well, I see Kent raising his hand. Okay. Yeah, that, I was raising my hand. <laughs> um, thank you guys. Um, I'm, yeah, there was, um, it's nice to talk about this today. Um, I, I usually there's the March, you know, that they do and, uh, really missed that. That's always been a extremely joyful, uh, time for me where I think this is a lot closer to the way things should be than they usually are most of the time. Um, I've been reading a book about the whole civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and uh, Roy Abernathy and, and or, um, Abernathy and Wilkins and all those folks and the the bus boycotts and and uh, the bus freedom riders and so forth and you know the thing that impresses me now is is how how much courage they had and how um, they would go into the South on these buses. And they would stop at some small city in the south, and there'd be a white mob there, ready to beat them up, to scream at them, to terrorize them. And um, the the mobs had an agreement with the police that the police would show up about 10 minutes late. And uh, this is when Robert Kennedy was the attorney general, and he was starting to lower the boom on some of the stuff that was going on in the south. But... um, he couldn't get around that 10 minute thing. And so for 10 minutes, um, these people would get off the bus. They would be screamed at, they would burn buses in certain cases. They would beat people up. They would knock people down and then the people would get back up and get knocked down again. And the whole nonviolent thing was just amazing that they were, they'd all studied Gandhi and the whole nonviolent idea of, um, protesting and so they kind of invited um people to confront them and they would do nothing other than stand there and and kind of bear witness to what their what their intentions were and they practiced this they they you know they had such a commitment to it that they all knew what to do there were there were codes and behaviors and they all learned them and it just it, it the, the organization and depth of commitment that those people had just absolutely blows me away. Mm-hmm. So inspiring. I mean, and, and it shows that you can create dramatic changes in a society um, if you do it the right way. I mean, they, they created amazing changes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that that struck me as well. Just, um, uh, I think there was, um, 
I'm trying to remember where I first heard it, but the um, practice. Um, Alan, I think you're unmuted. Um, if you can go ahead and mute yourself. Um, thank you. Yeah, there was um, this in, in Linda, I see your hand raised, um, but uh, I'll get back, to, I'll get to you in a second. Um, there was something said about how um, Dr. King planned um, his his communications and how um, he would talk to one person kind of like in the inner circle and then they would um, expand that to um, a few people in the core and they would kind of plan how that then that they would communicate to the larger group and then it would kind of by the time that he was making these speeches in front of um, large crowds, all of those things had been like what was to be said and how it would be delivered and when it would be delivered had all been mapped out already. And so that was kind of amazing to me. And so I get what you're saying about the the coordination and the planning and the effort. And um, and I feel like a lot of that is 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 happening now. I th- just think we have a, we're in a different society where um, the communications are different and um, the level of, um, I guess, disbursement of information is such that it's hard to probably keep it within that inner circle first um, before it gets, you know, um, uh, disseminated in the right way in the um, to the right audience um, at the right time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I I feel like sometimes things happen um, in a particular time because they can, because the conditions were right. And so we have to find what conditions are right in this time, but that doesn't mean that we wait, um, as I said in that, um, in um, reading that, section of Dr. King's letter. Um, sometimes, you know, action is, is better than nothing at all, even if it's not well-coordinated. So, uh, Linda. Can you unmute yourself, Linda? I can never find my button. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I- Regarding Alan, you're uh, unmuted again. Anyway, um, when when uh, Jim was talking about the moral leadership of King, which was profound, um, and and maybe um, wondering who who could ever you know, currently, you know, what's happening. I am actually quite, um, quite encouraged about now, you know, back in the day we had Baldwin and now we have Tanashi Coates and we really, (laughs) there are amazing writers and researchers and historians now of this generation that are educating all of us um we just we just need to get people to pay attention to them um 
and and spread the news kind of um share you know if you read a book that you are really blows your mind tell people about it and um if something's happening you know uh spread that i i feel a little old in this regard i i was in college when the writers were going down to uh to um the south to to help initially and and um um, you know, I, I can remember, you know, um, Emmett Till um, and that whole history. And it's just, when you talk about the long arc of justice, when you look at, and that was not the beginning. <laughs> that was, anyway, it's just phenomenal to me that um, it takes human beings so long to learn to be human. <laughs> And to be compassionate and uh, but I, I am hopeful by uh, my child's generation is smarter than we were more open and more um active than than we were so that's kind of where my my inspiration comes from Helen, um, I, I do want to say real quick, I didn't give um, Richard a chance to respond to Kent if I don't know if you had anything to say, but. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think um, Jim, Linda, Kent, um, I think uh, when I thought about opening discussions, I also thought about how, you know, relatively, I guess, you know, when I when both me and uh, Amona VA talked about perceptions, I was aware that, you know, our perceptions of King are very short from the eighties on. And the perception of generations that are older than us, you know, are very important, you know, because there's a, you know, you see that, you know, I think Linda just talked about it, you know, you see the long arc, right. And, that brings up many emotions and you know i i can't imagine the sadness of um actually being around and witnessing the loss of those leaders you know jim and um the, the i would say before we go to helen what that reminded me when you talked about that jim was the in the east coast i believe it happened over here too you know, the restructuring of neighborhoods after the assassination of Dr. King, because the riots were so big that, you know, um, people of color in all neighborhoods were almost destroyed during those riots. And, you know, I grew up in Jersey City in um, Newark, and the demographics of the area you know, where I thought I was living in a, in a neighborhood that was, I thought it was always mostly one ethnicity. I thought it was mostly just Black and Hispanic. But I remember asking my mom, because we went to a Catholic church, um, that I was thrown off by some of the parishioners having a heavy Irish accent. And I remember my mom told me the demographics here changed after the riots. She said the area that we lived in in Jersey City 
was an Irish neighborhood for a long time. And so, yeah, Jim, when you brought that up, it just reminded me of um, the the hurt and pain these deaths cause, you know, on like a country level, you know? So, yeah, thank you. Um, and thank you for allowing me the time, Helen. Uh, Richard and Amanavie, I I just want to say thank you for sustaining the BIPOC Sangha. I mean, when I when I hear you speak about the clarity of finding a path in providing refuge for the community, I just you know. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh says about Plum Village. We're the place people fill up again so they can go out. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Um, I, I wanna um, actually highlight um, Moni Calhoun, who's not um, with us on this um, sit, but she's um, currently helming um, POC or BIPOC Sangha and um, has been doing it for, um, uh, well, she, she's been helping me almost since the beginning, maybe a few months after um, I started and um, has since kind of uh, taken it um, forward. And um, I'm really grateful for her and um, a couple of the, of our Sangha members, uh, Laura Ting and Cedric Orange, who are also um, leading by facilitating um, SIT. So um, it's allowed me to, um, when when life gets a little jumbling crazy and I have to bounce, um, I know that BIPOC is still going because of those folks. And so I wanted to express my gratitude to them. Um, Dorley. Well, thank you again so much. Um, I, I wanted to say, Richard, it, it was I was so happy that you expanded the sense of King's vision and his, you know, sort of ethical view that he was against the war in Vietnam and he was really criticizing capitalism and, you know, that he had sort of a global understanding of you know, what it really means to work towards racial justice and social justice. Um, and and then Amon Vier, when you were talking about your sadness and despair, and it was reassuring, I guess it was something I needed to hear that we all experience that, King experienced that. It's part of a part of what it means to be wholehearted and fully engaged. And um, this past weekend, my husband and I, we created this flyer to hand out in commemoration of Martin Luther King's legacy and basically inviting people to support the Freedom to Vote Act, uh, the John, R John Lewis Act. And um, we listed phone numbers for the senators to call so they could call in and, and vote and, and express their how important it is to vote for the Freedom to Vote. John R. Lewis Act. But as we were going to do it, I thought, why are we doing this? I mean, all the social media says it's a done deal. It's not going to pass. And and then I remembered, I saw something in the paper that said that Martin Luther King said, it's never too late to do what's right. 
it's never too late to do what's right. And that's the whole Bodhisattva message. It's, it's in the moment now and how we act does impact, you know, the world. And so that was what gave me the strength, I guess, to, you know, start to talk to people um, and hand out my flyers. So thank you. I had to give you a deep bow for that one, Dorley. Oh. <laughs> thank you for, um, for, for moving through your discouragement and, and, and yeah, yeah, it's never too late to do what's right. I'm going to hold that with me. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, looks like Sarah has her hand raised and uh, I want to hear from Sarah. So much, Richard and Amona VA. This is one of the most moving um, Sangha talks, Dharma talks that I've heard in a long time. And I want to thank you both for your deep, deep faith and uh, commitment to practice. It it came through so strongly in in both of you. Uh, It has inspired me greatly. And I I really thank you for reading that. excerpt from Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail about the biggest obstacle being the white liberals in the country. I, I, I think that is true now also. And I think we need to, the message I heard from you and uh, from uh, Richard and, 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 and you, Oma VA was that it's that same thing. We ha- it's the faith. We have to stand up. If we see something is wrong, you know, the fear or it's going to be later, you know, why don't you just wait a while and things, you know, it's not the right time. All of that is, is not authentic. It's not standing. Your principles are false, if that's what you say. And, and I appreciate that call. Um, it, and and your both of you, your observations have given me incredible strength to try to stand up against that. And and I I thank you deeply. Thank you. I have a question though. Uh, didn't you, in the reading? Didn't it say it was the moderates? It, it was the moderates. It was the people. That's what you said. And 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 it's the people. I think that, well, I want to make that, you know, just for the record. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's um, the phrase is the white moderate. And so I guess that would be the, um, I, I, I'm i just going to say it. I'm going to say it's the Joe Mansions and the Kirsten Cinemas of the world. But I feel like that's not even really um, appropriate because I feel like Kirsten Cinema is not even like a moderate. I feel like she just flipped from whatever liberal path that she was on and was like, oh, this is, you know, going to benefit me politically to do this and just, yeah. So maybe that those aren't good examples. They're just jerks. So <laughs> I think they're very My good opinion. examples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you. Um, I was about to say, Sarah, and to Jim, your comment and uh, Omo Nivier about the moderates. Um, also in the thinking about this day, I came across how, you know, I think I talked about it earlier, how, you know, um, Dr. King now, he has a favorability rating of 95% of the population in America, I guess, either say or believe in his message. But 
Um, it doesn't seem like 95% of America wants that legislation to pass or, you know, cares about Black Lives Matter. Um, and I wanted to say, which um, always, you know, doing the right thing or I guess being aware of the issues now and maybe activists and, and civil rights leaders now, you know, they say when Martin Luther King was alive, he was not popular, right? Um, and there's this feeling that, you know, the right thing isn't always popular, um, but it becomes popular later on, <laughs> which is, I guess, that long arc, right? It's it's not popular now. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say, I listened to this uh, podcast, um, which wasn't Buddhist, wasn't about MLK, but um, it's more of a, I guess it was a psychologist podcast, but they were talking about living in the now, but sort of thinking about the long future. Um, whereas it's, you know, I guess activism and social change has that feeling where you're you're acutely aware of the issues of today and what's going on. And it's not popular, but you stay in it because you're looking towards that future. And I think Dr. King, even though he, you know, he knew it was hard. I feel like he had this view of the long future. That's something, something was going to happen later. And, you know, with that long arc, I think the same thing, right? It's a, it's a long future. A lot of things that happen now, they're not popular. Um, but hopefully in the future, you know, they'll, they'll be popular. They'll get through sooner or later. Oh, Jody. Yeah, um, I also wanted to thank both of you for your presentation and um, vulnerability in coming forward and um, all that. And, and I was going to say what you were saying, Richard, about having the long view, which I think is really important for stuff like this. Um, and I mean, I was 11, I think, when Dr. King was killed. So, but um, in my family, we were very aware of, of what was happening in the world. So I, I was aware of what was going on. Um, and, you know, I just want to say also there, there are very, um, uh, there are still big moral leaders and the March on Washington was also called the poor people's campaign. And there is the poor people's campaign still exists today. And it's led by, um, Reverend Barber and Leo Harris. Um, and they're still doing a lot of work. There's a chapter in Sacramento, um, so there's there's still a lot of of a lot that's going on. Um, so you know, I think that's all all really good. And when I was listening today on the radio and they were playing large excerpts from uh, Dr. King's various speeches, and one of them was uh, a very long part from um, his last speech in Memphis. And, um, or was he in Montgomery? Anyways, it's a city that started with an M. And um, he was talking about how um, if we, he was talking about that we have to act now if we all 
for all of us to survive. And if we don't act now, we all will be annihilated. And um, I, I think those words are very, very true, maybe even more so today than they were then. Um, so, um, yeah, anyways, I just wanted to say that and just uh, thank you guys again for the presentation. Thank you, Jody, and thanks for um, sharing about the chapter in Sacramento of the Poor People's Campaign. That's good information. Yes, thank you. Yes, so maybe we've come to the end of our evening, and uh, maybe Oscar could.